That's the evidence that led the panel to say, this is like a turtle on a fence post. It just doesn't happen. Someone puts it up there. It's not a coincidence. Do you have evidence of that, that they were relying extensively on race? Yes. Strategically, we can be moved and bounced around and curved out of, of our communities. Um, this, this is the system that we're, that we're living in. Uh, we're, we're, just, we're still fighting for a right to vote. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts, the law, and the U.S. Supreme Court. I am not Dahlia Lithwick. I am Susan Matthews, Slate's executive editor. We may have met before because I hosted Slow Burns Season 7 on Roe v. Wade. I'm hopping into the Amicus host chair this week for just a quick second, purely for the purposes of introducing this week's show about a case with big implications for vote dilution and gerrymandering that could significantly impact districts around the country. This past Wednesday of this, the second week of the Supreme Court term, the court heard a consequential case about a South Carolina gerrymander. This case presents the court with another opportunity to reorder and undermine a voting rights regime that was supposed to guarantee Black voters have a meaningful chance to effectuate their political will in the voting booth. I'm going to let Dahlia take it from here. Oral arguments were heard for two hours in Alexander v. South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. As listeners may recall, after the decision a few years back in 2019 in a case called Rucho versus Common Cause, the Supreme Court held that federal courts are not allowed to hear lawsuits challenging partisan gerrymanders, meeting maps that were drawn just to benefit one party or the other. Such cases after Rucho are considered, quote, non-justiciable. That means justices may not touch them. But Federal courts can still hear challenges to racial gerrymanders. Those are maps drawn to minimize or dilute the political power of voters that is based on race. And a federal court in South Carolina struck down the South Carolina map because that map was found to boost Republican votes in the district. But also the gerrymander was accomplished by excluding black voters from the districts. In other words, Alexander comes to us raising the thorny question of what you do with a racial gerrymander that is dressed as a non-justiciable political one. So joining us to talk about Wednesday's arguments are the senior counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Leah C. Aiden, and one of the plaintiffs in the case, Taiwan Scott. He's a Hilton Head resident and Leah serves as senior counsel at LDF. She previously served as a deputy director of litigation at LDF and has assisted in the planning strategy and supervision of their voting rights work, addressing vote denial and vote dilution. Taiwan Scott is a Hilton Head Island native. He's a member of the Gullah people. Those are African-American descendants of slaves who were forced to work the rice, indigo, and sea island cotton plantations on the coast. Ty is also uh, one of the LDF plaintiffs in this suit. He's the only personal plaintiff in this litigation. So to both of you, just welcome to Amicus, but thank you so much for giving us time on a busy week. Thank you for having us here and for illuminating what we think is a very important case and issue. Yes, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. Maybe if we could start with you, Leah, to set the table. Let's just do the facts first of this particular map. 
In January 2023, we had a unanimous three-judge panel that ordered the state of South Carolina to redraw its 2022 congressional map. I hope I get this right. After an eight-day trial with copious testimony from 24 witnesses, including six expert witnesses, 652 pieces of evidence. And the court said, oh, this looks like a racial gerrymander. And I guess I would love for you to just explain before we even start, what does that evidence look like? What did those experts and witnesses and pieces of evidence suggest that made it so clear to the three-judge court that this was, in fact, a racial gerrymander? Absolutely. It was a voluminous record. And the question in a racial gerrymandering case is whether or not there's a significant sorting of voters on the basis of race. It importantly doesn't get into why someone might have done it. It doesn't get into the electoral impact of the sorting. It's really just a question of was race the predominant reason or not for why voters were assigned to particular districts? And the district court found very striking evidence um, that the mapmakers moved close to 200,000 people, even though after the 2020 census, there was about 80,000 too many people in CD1, which is anchored in Charleston, and there were about 85,000 too few people in CD6, which has been represented by Representative Clyburn, uh, and is the only majority Black district in South Carolina. Instead of just trading voters in between those two districts, they moved close to 200,000 voters between them. And in so doing, they disproportionately moved 30,000 Black Charlestonians, which is a significant population. And they treated Charleston, which had been historically anchored in CD1, differently than they treated other counties, other areas of the state, where they basically kept things like they had had them in the 2011 map. And the court looked at even the micro level of what precincts were moved around in this process. Was this just about Democrats being moved around because the state is saying this is all about partisanship? And the evidence really based upon the just the statistics, just the data from either the census or the data from the state or the data from the elections reflected that, and as the justices picked up on Wednesday, that Black Democrats, Black voters were treated differently than white Democrats, white voters. And experts corroborated that. And they they looked at the precinct size and said, is it, were they moving precincts because they wanted to get out the most precincts with the most Democratic voters? Were they moving precincts because they were just targeting white Democrats and Black Democrats equally? They looked at all that. And the evidence pointed to, no, Black voters were significantly moved out of CD1. They were disproportionately moved out of CD1. And race was a better predictor than the party affiliation based on one election data point that the state was using. And that's the evidence that led the panel to say, this is like a turtle on a fence post. It just doesn't happen. Someone puts it up there. It's not a coincidence. I wonder, Ty, if you could walk us through, you know, I'm, I'm remembering almost exactly a year ago, we had a very similar conversation about what was then Merrill v. Milligan becomes Allen v. Milligan, the huge Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act case out of Alabama. And we talked to Evan Milligan 
about the stuff that we don't know that you know because this is where you live. And so I would just really love, Ty, if you could take a minute and just help us understand a little bit about the history of the area. I would love for you to tell us about Mitchellville, which is what the first freedman's town that was formed during the Civil War. There's an extraordinary amount of local history that you are missing if you are just treating this case as a case about a political gerrymander. Being a part of the Gullah Geechee corridor, cultural heritage corridor, uh, is significant because uh, here it is, Congress has uh, dedicated this corridor to the Gullah Geechee people. Interestingly enough, we actually just passed the 17-year anniversary of that enactment. Being in Hilton Head, it's like the heart, the heart of the corridor. Like you mentioned, having Mitchellville and the significance of Mitchellville being the first freedman's village where um, the enslaved people were actually trying to escape to, you know, to get to Mitchellville because uh, we were protected by the Union Army. Um, there's a lot of history here within our corridor. And, and again, I, I, I go back and I question, you know, identifying us as a group of people but, you know, what is Congress doing to help sustain us? Uh, we, we have a serious issue with um, being on Hilton Head in general, being part of a um, world-class resort destination. Uh, the problem is, is what's happening around the Gullah community and the negative impacts when it comes down to tourism. I can talk about Hilton Head, but it's happening throughout the corridor. You know, road impacts, well, I don't even call them roads. I'm going to say highways, highways through our historical communities airport expansions. You know, we, we have these serious uh, concerns that impact our community and our way of life. And it's kind of blatant and obvious when I look at, you know, what's happening to us and to the point where it's systemic, where you have all this development around you and you're not able to partake in it. And you have other people that are um, taking advantage of it. And having a representative who knows and understands what's happening to us is important. I mean, we have to have that. And, and so far, historically, we haven't had that type of representation um, to help address our ongoing concerns. The one connection to the racial gerrymandering that I was explaining that really tees up Ty's issue is that the there's this Gola community based in Hilton Head, but there are Gola people throughout the corridor that he's explaining throughout um, and go into Charleston. So when the court was asking about the West Ashley, or when the panel decision is talking about North Charleston and the precincts and Deer Park, those are heavily and historically Black areas, also of Gullah people. They've been reassigned to a neighboring district where Peaceville in that um, district may be over 100 miles away. So Ty is harmed because he doesn't have the benefit of being in a district with other Gullah people who are in and around Charleston who have similar issues to him in terms of wanting to advocate for land ownership, coastal issues, access to sustainable and sustainable economy. There was testimony about the people who work on the ports in Charleston, but those people live and work in Charleston, but then they've been reassigned to another district where they have to compete for a representative who is dealing with issues as far as away as what's happening in Columbia, Columbia and Richland County, which is where CD6 is anchored. So there are real implications for representation for people for Mr. Scott and the Gullah people because of the way that they have race-based and gerrymandered CD1. 
And Ty, I, I feel a little bit like I just heard you say, and I think I want to pull on this a bit, that you know, when you designate something a uh, sort of historical entity, you know, you say, like, we want to create a museum for the Gullah people. You know, we want to create Mitchellville as a historic artifact of this really important thing. And in the same breath, you say, we're going to take away your power to control every single aspect of your life. I mean, it's there, there feels like there's this added injury here of being told on the one hand, you know, we cherish and relish, you know, your history, your legacy, this land, and also, sorry, we're going to pack you into some other district. Is that fair? Is that what you're saying? Definitely. For me, it's a, a sign of disrespect. I mean, you say one thing, but then you do something else. I mean, we, we have to have a voice in, you know, taking that away from us. Uh, we we have the same concerns uh, throughout the corridor. Here it is where we're still dealing with the same issues that my great grandparents still with, you know, having a right to vote and being heard. I mean, we, we need to be here to be able to tell our, our story. Leah, I wonder if we could hear um, the voice of Chief Justice John Roberts on the question that you started with, which is how can you ever disentangle a racial gerrymander from a partisan political gerrymander? The one is not lawful. The other, I guess, is not justiciable. So here's John Roberts uh, at oral argument on Wednesday. Have we ever had a case before where all it is is circumstantial evidence? I'm not saying you can't get there, but... But it does seem that this is the this would be breaking new ground uh, in our voting rights jurisprudence. So, so Leah, I guess, can you just walk us through uh, the ways in which the evidence that you used, you, you hinted at this, but the evidence that you used was, A, not circumstantial, uh, and B, if there could ever be evidence under his construction of the facts that is not circumstantial. Two things I'll say to preface this, which is this court was confronted with a very similar question just in 2017 in the Cooper case, which arose in North Carolina, where there also was a political defense, where there also is a hyper correlation between race and party. I mean, it's a state just above South Carolina that has its own unique history of race and partisanship, but they are closely tethered together as well. And that case, like ours, used a motley of data and evidence. And that's because this court has made clear that there is no one particular form of proof in an equal protection case. There may be one case where someone admits what they're doing. There may be one case where you just look at a map and it looks so egregious that you know something is happening there. There may be a case where someone proves that they could have drawn this alternative map that shows that they could have achieved their Republican goal and not gerrymandered and comply with traditional redistricting principles. What I try to suggest is that we are aware of the jurisprudence. We were aware of the Cooper decision, as was our trial court panel. And we identified a method to disentangle race and party, where they're very wound up together. How do you try to unwind them to determine which one is playing more of a factor than other? And what I try to impress upon the court is that the experts in our case use the very types of methods that experts used in the Cooper case. And the court accepted those methods in the Cooper case. The panel accepted those methods in our case. And they controlled for 
partisanship. They controlled for precinct size, and they were able to use very complicated statistical methods to discern which one mattered more than the other. Not that neither of them mattered at all, and not that partisanship wasn't at play, but which one mattered more. And we presented not one, but two experts who did similar methods. They used different data points. One expert used the data that the state said that they were using. Another expert used a different set of data. And both of their outcomes pointed in the same direction, which is that race was a better predictor than partisanship. And then you have an amicus brief by the people who did the methods in the Cooper case who said, I looked at what those experts did, and the court was right to rely upon what the experts in in this case did because they followed what we did in Cooper and their totally sound methodologies. The state had the opportunity to hire someone, as I think both Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan picked up. They had the opportunity to hire someone to say, your methods are wrong. I did a better analysis, and it shows something different. The state did not do that. And so what I also asked was, are we fighting over experts on appeal? Or did we have this fight at the trial court? Did the state lose on this fight? And now was it more than plausible than not that this expert testimony augmented by other evidence led the court to properly conclude based upon the full record that there was a racial gerrymander? And we think absolutely there was enough evidence to show what we established. So this is the nut of the thing, uh, the crazy making bit. And I'm reminded, um, I feel like every episode of this show is, as Sherilyn Eiffel once told us, but as Sherilyn Eiffel has said on this show multiple times, we have this copious, elaborate, very detailed findings of fact, and it's been erased. I mean, this is a court attempting to erase it. What you're saying strikes me as one level more pernicious, Leah, because now we're trying to relitigate it. It's almost worse than ignoring the court below to say, I'm going to nitpick it. I don't like that expert or I don't like that piece of evidence. And it almost feels like we're in a whole new world. I'm thinking of Jamel Bowie's construction last year of how he thought of the term of, of judicial arrogance, where the court gets to say that the court below findings of fact in the court below were wrong. And yet it feels like that was the vibe. That was the vibe. And I been prepped for this argument. I listened to Julius Chambers, one of my mentors, just like Sherilyn Eiffel. And he, and I think Shaw, when he was arguing with the court, raised how there's something called the intensely local appraisal that cases like White v. Register or even Cooper acknowledges where you trust the panel of judges who are going to get down and dirty in the facts and really scrapple with the evidence. And that's their job. The only job of the appellate court is to look at the total record and say, was there some grave error that took place? And only then are they to correct it. But if they're not being asked, if I was sitting on that panel, would I have decided it differently? That's not the question. It's words, there a grave error. And there are three judges on this panel. It was a unanimous lower court decision. Two of those judges are based in South Carolina. They know what's up. And that's what our judiciary system is set up to do, is to put trial judges close to the ground to conduct this appraisal. And appellate courts are supposed to defer to them, again, unless there's some grave error that's taken place, which I really would be hard-pressed to say that this state has established was the case. 
So just one follow on to that, and then I want to pivot back to you, Ty. But it seems to me that, you know, there is a clear error standard. I mean, you've said it now a couple of times. This is an easy case. There's a longstanding legal understanding of the clear error rule when a trial court decides that a map is a racial gerrymander under findings of fact, as we've said, that's subject to review only for clear error. So I'm going to ask you, and I know this is going to make you crazy, but can you remind me what the clear error standard is and how the court is meant to apply it? Because I don't think we're in that world now. The clear error standard is uh, looking at whether or not factual findings, which a racial gerrymandering finding is, and the subsidiary findings, such as, do I believe that race was a better predictor than partisanship? Those types of findings of fact are not to be disturbed unless there is no record in which you would make that finding. And an appellate court is asked to look at whether the total record would support those factual findings. So there were a couple questions from the judge that was like, say there are 100 factual findings and I disagree with 15 of them. Does that establish clear error? No, because 15 out of 100 doesn't reflect that they were totally wrong about the entire finding. And the plausibility is also about deference to the trial court is was a rational panel capable of discerning that there is no way that it makes sense for South Carolina to have moved nearly 200,000 people landed on the exact same Black voting age percentage in CD1 as in 2011? Does it make sense that 30,000 Black Charlestonians, who incidentally are sort of spread out in Charleston, so you kind of had to do some work, which is the panel reflected to identify the precincts with the highest Black populations and sort them out. And they have this admission from the map maker that He abandoned the very principle that they said guided them, which is changing the map as little as possible from the 2011 map. You also have the fact that the court had worked with this expert before who drew the map and knew that he had used race every time that he had drawn maps for two decades prior and then says, I never looked at race this time around. And the court's asking him questions and he's able to recite the racial makeup of precincts on the stand. So all of that is to say there were all these facts that the court found. Was it plausible that they identified that there was a gerrymander in CD1? Absolutely. And that's the perspective that the appellate court, the Supreme Court, should have when it looks at the record. So, Ty, I guess I'm I'm curious, as you're listening to these arguments, how it feels for you. This is your home. This is your family's home. This is your heritage. This is deeply, deeply connected to facts on the ground that you know about and that the justices are kind of spitballing about. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us how it feels to have a court that suddenly sees itself as the expert on your neighborhood. Listen, I mean, I sat at the trial for eight days uh, in Charleston and just just heard um, just the blatant disregard for for my people and for my culture. Um, it was as though we don't even exist. Um, I mean, it, it's sad to see that um, that's the the mentality and the attitude 
that's just it's just it was just blatant. Like um like again, we're we're a part of this this historical area here and um, our concerns don't even matter. I mean it's it's it, it's sad to see that that in this day and time that we're still faced with um just having the opportunity to elect someone uh, to address our concerns and, and just to see that, you know, strategically we can be moved and bounced around and curved out of, of our communities. Um, this, this is the system that we're, that we're living in. Uh, we're, we're just, we're still fighting for a right to vote um, in 2023. 20, Leah, probably most of the ink that was spilled or the pixels that were spilled after argument uh, went to Justice Alito, who I guess just woke up on the Perry Mason side of the bed on Wednesday and thought he would just go head to head with you for a very long time. I think Chris Geidner, who covered the case for us, said 37 questions. Do you have evidence of that, that they were relying extensively on race? Which one would you rather include? If you're a Republican legislature that wants to produce a Republican-leaning district. If I could just follow up, is it not true that... So that's a nice way of saying that he lied, right? And I I want you to tell me which one... All right, that's one. Is that damning? They say he gave no plausible explanation for that. Isn't that a plausible explanation for all of those things? Is it a, is it a plausible reason? Did they reason? say anything like that? Did he ever say that? Let me come back to the question I asked about why you were, how can we possibly give any weight to, it just never occurred to him that politics might have something to do with it. Did Dr. Duchin control for politics? Did the district court uh, rely on Does the analysis take into it? presume that one can be moved and doesn't assume that a pre, uh, that all precincts could be moved. Is that damning? You know, I understand you're not going to malign Justice Alito, but were you prepared to have the court in effect sort of stipulate <laughs> the lower court had a huge record, but now we're going to fight about uh, experts and witnesses? Were you ready for that to happen? I was and the great tradition of the Legal Defense Fund prepared for a lot of what happened because that's what our job is to do, is to represent Mr. Scott and the South Carolina NAACP to the best of our ability. So we prepare and I and a team were ready for questions about the record and ready also for questions that were more about the impact of this case for the next case. But I think that that line of questioning reflects the real test that this court has to make, which is do they stand by the clear error rule and the plausibility of the record, or do they become many trials uh, and have many trials at the appellate level, which I have always understood as a lawyer and in law school to as a practicing lawyer that that is not the role of the appellate court. I was expecting the deep skepticism for the claim, largely because, right, this is a unique claim in the sense that we are not bringing it in the context of a majority minority district. This case isn't about trying to pack black voters into majority minority districts at numbers where they're not needed and it's wasting their power. This is a case about Black people like Ty and his neighbors having power and then them being classified on the basis of race and being cracked in order to diminish their power. So I was expecting like this is a different case. We've never ruled in this context. Um, those types of questions, but the barrage of where was this in the record and did this expert say this and look at this 
I tried to make clear that these were all fights that we had at the lower court level and not fights that I was expecting or would expect the Supreme Court would want to spend their time engaging in. There's a nice moment when I think Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson essentially made that point. I didn't know that we were to evaluate whether we agreed or disagreed with each of their findings, whether we would have found, uh, you know, had a different takeaway. Do I not understand what the clear error standard is? But it certainly felt like she was naming the thing that was hard for you to name, which is uh, if we're going to become another trial court, I would probably (laughs) prepare quite differently (laughs) for oral argument, right? I bring my experts there and say, would you like to talk to them? I'd love for you to listen to them because they're completely sound. They're trustworthy. If that was what I expected, I would have loved to have had the actual experts there to defend their analyses. Ty, can you talk for one little minute about, I think you're talking about some version of gentrification without representation, right? Hilton Head becoming simultaneously this go-to vacation destination, heaps of money being poured, as you said, into highways and certain strains of the tourism trade. Can you talk a little bit about in a fairer, just world where your votes mattered, uh, what the kinds of things are you would want to be preserving, Gullah, culture, tradition, where would you be directing resources if it wasn't just to people golfing? I grew up uh, on Hilton Head. Uh, I learned how to swim in the creeks, you know, fishing and crabbing. Um, Those opportunities are very, very limited now. Um, Access to the waterways is very, very limited. Um, You know, that type of lifestyle is what we're, we're losing to development. So that, that's our culture. That's our way of life. Businesses on our property, um, you know, having a little small you know, or a mom and pop store in the front and, and living on the back, you know, so we're, we're being uh, restricted from doing those type of things, ordinances and zoning. I, I personally, it took me seven years to open up a business on my property. I mean, just following, you know, and fighting the the bureaucracy around it. I mean, I, I'm very proud of it because uh, the struggle to get that business is what kind of led me to um, the introduction with Legal Defense Fund uh, nearly nearly six years ago. And, and that's why I have so much love and respect for Leah, um, for what she um, continues to fight for and um, being that advocate for um, for our community. Well, Ty, you're going to have to tell us the name of your business and do a little a little moment on that. Uh what it is. The name of the business is um, Beautiful Island Square. And I'm going to give you a little history behind Beautiful Island Square. Um, the name Beautiful Island, my name is Taiwan, spelled just like the country, the island of Taiwan, which was formerly called Formosa, which means Beautiful Island. So it's an um, open-air uh, sales venue um, that has... Um, basically food trucks. And the goal was always to, um, you know, have an avenue for entrepreneurs to, um, to come out and, um, you know, express what they do. I mean, sadly, you know, we, we started with a local um, uh, Gullah owned business called Gullah Geechee Catering, uh, Native Island owned. And we hit a roadblock with the government. Um, it was as though, you know, we can put mobile homes on our property, but when it came down to, you know, having businesses, that was always the, um, the, the fight. 
you know, it took seven years in and out of court to get that place open. Uh, that's my baby. That's my heart. You know, I mean, I, I really stood stood up um, and challenged the, the local municipality on on getting that place open. Uh, and that beautiful island square, uh, believe it or not, is the first um, commercial establishment where a Gullah family owns the land newly erected buildings and the business to get open since the town of Hilton Head was incorporated since 1983. Um, I do remember when I came to live in Hilton Head, I moved back to Hilton Head in, in 97. And um, I worked with one of the elder community leaders. He said to me, zoning, zoning is the newest form of racism the newest form of discrimination. And that still rings in my ears today because strategically that's what they have been utilizing to stop us from using our property. And the town of Hilton Head is the largest landowner of formerly Gullah-owned property. And I want to just put a point on it that this reflects the interaction between local government, state government, and federal government. And each of those Levels of government have a role to play in addressing the issues that Ty was mentioning. I mean, there is this, uh, in some ways, insult that Representative Clyburn is supposed to address in his position, the issues that Ty flagged, but also the issues of rural poverty in the central part of the Black Belt part of, of the state. So he's supposed to do it all for all the Black people. And Ty has said, well, I live in Hilton Head and I have things in common with people who, long, who live along the corridor all the way up, not necessarily things in common with people in the rural part of the state. Keep me in the same district so that I can bring my voice together with other people who have issues similar to mine and advocate for someone to be responsive to it. And that's what's been harmed by the race-based sorting. I feel like I'm hearing both of you say a version of you have to be myopic to the point of almost like, I don't know, your eyes would be crossed to try to disentangle race and politics in the state of South Carolina for the same reason that you can't disentangle it for purposes of justiciability, right? That every single piece of the politics we're describing here and the political gerrymander here and the partisan gerrymander is inflected with race at every level. And the idea that unless you say the sentence, this is a racial gerrymander, everything else is circumstantial evidence to use the chief justice is nuts because everything that Ty is describing about a way of life that goes back centuries is about race and politics. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes, yes. And I, I will add, I mean, it, it's amazing when you see just the difference of, of attitude based on who owns the property. And I'm going to give you a prime example. Uh, we have a historical church in Mitchellville that's in the airport runway, the, the flyover zone. And that church is being asked to move because it's in the runway of the, of the airport expansion. However, uh, on the opposite side of the runway is gas stations that one in general has just 
was was just able to be rebuilt and another one brand new being built. So what's the difference between these two properties, one on the historical side and within the black community and the other one in the off the main highway, the expressway, one has to move and the other one can actually not only rebuild, but build another one. You know, so we, we have to question those, you know, the airport, the um, highway expansion, you know, Highway 278, the main corridor coming, driving through the Native Island community. Uh, they're expanding it, it into like six lanes through a historic community. I mean, so you, you have these, um, these obvious uh, impacts to our community that, that no one's talking about. It's like, okay, well, just do it. You know, it doesn't matter as long as it's not, just get the tourists in and out as quick as possible. But you have freeways, highways going through our communities. Um, you know, it, it's, it's very blatant when you see the native communities, especially where I live. And again, I know it's happening in Charleston. I've been in Charleston. It's happening throughout the corridor where, I mean, when you drive through one area and you can see landscape medians, you know, so this is where the government puts their money at. But when you get into our communities, it's like, it's, it's highways, get them, get them in and get them out as fast as possible. Don't, don't even have them slow down to see what's happening around them. And, and what you're saying, Ty, and I think it goes back to where we started, because you're saying, you know, who's talking about this? Who's advocating for this? And how can you be talking about it if, you know, I, I think the the trial court below used the word, you know, bleached, like they've bleached your voices out of the conversation. So who's talking about it? There's no one there to talk about race. And yet we're saying this is not a, a, a racial gerrymander. I guess, Leah, I want to end by asking you... <laughs> Maybe a question that you're going to tell me you can't answer, but I'm just so aware of Allen versus Milligan as sort of standing for the principle that this court, despite the members of the court and what they have said and thought about racialized voting before, but they take seriously the idea that we're not quite over race-based vote suppression and you know, the court got a lot of credit this summer, both for the decision in Allen and for Justice Kavanaugh's, you know, solicitude in speeches about understanding that there's still a massive problem with the, the construction of racialized uh, maps. So I find myself kind of stymied <laughs> by the fact that the same justices, uh, Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts, who got a lot of props over the summer for kind of getting it in a case that was only just written in June. And then they're standing in front of you and saying, either we don't see race here or there's just no way to disentangle it. So we're throwing up our hands. Is it does it is the answer to that question what you said, which is this is just the posture of this case, which makes it easy to say, poo poo, there's no issue here. Our position is even if we couldn't disentangle it, that doesn't end the case. There may be other ways to prove racial predominance without discontangling. I think it would send a serious message to other states that they can, in the absence of another protection like the Voting Rights Act, play, disperse, and disregard Black people and get away with it under the guise of partisanship. 
And that would be really destructive to this theory that they advanced in their affirmative action case last term, which is that we're supposed to not use race in illegitimate ways, even if we might have a lofty goal. So from their their view, it's lofty to have a political goal. They have said time and time again, using race and race excessively here is illegitimate. It would be hypocritical. It would send a message to states that they can disregard the constitutional rights of Black people and I think it would also fly in the face of the way that we litigate cases, which is to allow trial courts to make factual findings and to leave it to appellate courts to correct those findings only in the gravest of circumstances and for the appellate courts to step in only when there's been some legal error made. None of that was the case here. This is South Carolina. There was a brief by historians, 30 historians that talked about the ways that politics has always mattered in redistricting in South Carolina. And Black people have always been the pawns and the political price in South Carolina. And if they don't acknowledge that here, we're in a really terrible place, but we will keep fighting because Ty matters, the community that he lives in matters, and we just will not give up. Yeah, I mean, I think what, again, what you're both saying is that we are in a very weird position where the Supreme Court is telling us if race matters, you have to keep proving to us why and how it matters. And we're going to say to you, where are your maps, even though you didn't need, right? I mean, like you said, now I have to call my experts to come to the Supreme Court and testify as though this is, you know, uh, 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 the first bite of the apple. It should never be the case that as racism morphs, we have to prove it one particular way. I mean, racial injustice comes in many forms. That's why we're allowed to prove racial predominance in many different ways. And that's why this court has said, I'm not going to tell you that it has to be a map or it has to be shape or it has to be statistics because it reflects that racism shows up in a lot of different ways. And we need to allow people to be able to prove it, how it shows up. And I think putting a thumb on its scale and saying you have to show it one way and it's got to be direct evidence or it's got to be through a map or it's got to be through disentangling would do injustice to our ability to prove racism, where it shows up and how it shows up. Right. Unless it's, you know, a marching band carrying a banner that says we're racists, um, you're going to lose. I I want Ty to give us a last thought on, you know, you've just said in a couple of different ways, and I think it's so important. You know, we need to have a voice in this. And, you know, we had a voice and the trial court heard us. And uh, it seems as though that was erased a little bit this week. And so I would just love for you to just tell our listeners why this isn't just about District 1 in South Carolina. And it's not just about, you know, local government. This is about, as you said from the very beginning of this conversation, hundreds of years of saying, you don't matter, you're pawns, we're moving you around for our political purposes. I I would love to hear your voice. I I think if the Supreme Court does uh, does not agree with the lower court, um, it's it's going to send a message, uh, a strong message, uh, again that um, it's okay to suppress and continue to suppress people of color um, to show that it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter who you are, 
what matters is you're black and you don't matter. I mean, that, that's the message that I feel it will show that because you're black, um, your voice doesn't matter. Uh, your needs doesn't matter. Um, your sustainability doesn't matter. Your culture doesn't matter. I think it's sending a strong message that we've, we've, we've come a long way just to take a step back or, or centuries back. Um, but I, I really hope that, that, that isn't the case. Um, I would feel better knowing that, uh, my opportunity to elect someone who understands my, my concerns, my community concerns will be afforded to me because, uh, I mean, we, we do matter. I think this case is very significant. It has largely flown under the radar, but I think it's very significant in a post Shelby world, in a world where there are fewer and fewer protections for voting rights and for black voting rights. And in a post rucho world where using partisanship, which has been part of our democracy since our democracy has existed as a means or as a way to achieve racial discrimination is not new and should not be given a green light by this court. And I think if legislatures are given that signal, you know, you will see this happening, not just in South Carolina, but you'll see it happening in Arkansas. You'll see it happening in Wisconsin. You'll see it happening all over the places where there are significant communities of Black voters and where our environment is very polarized. And I think that we're only going to see the ramifications of that when it comes to real issues that impact our lives. And so I would not ignore the significance of what the court does here. Leah C. Aiden is senior counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She argued the case this week at the court. And Taiwan Scott is a Hilton Head resident, a member of the Gullah Geechee community, and he is the personal plaintiff in this litigation. I cannot thank you both enough on a very, very busy week for giving us so much of your time. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate and Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We'll be back soon with another episode of Amicus. Until then, take good care.